Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. The head of the World Bank is warning that climate change will lead to violent conflict over shortages of food and water. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel said Monday that rising sea levels and other effects of climate change will pose major challenges. Hey everyone, welcome back to America Daps, the climate change podcast. We have a fantastic episode today. We have investigative reporter Tristan Corton talking about last year's huge climate change story out of Florida. Also, don't forget to subscribe to America Daps on iTunes and visit the website americaadapts.org. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Today, there is no greater threat to our planet than climate change. The world is looking to the United States, to us, to lead. This is the only planet we've got. Hi, everyone. This is America Daps, the climate change podcast. I'm Doug Parsons, your host of the show. And today's episode, we have Tristam Corton, an independent award-winning reporter out of Miami. Hi, Tristam. How are you? Hi, Doug. I'm great. Thanks. Well, thanks for, for being on the podcast. This is a very exciting episode for me, at least. I'm originally from Florida, and you've been doing a lot of Florida work. And so I really wanted to just talk about some of the things that you're doing. I, I first start off, I mean, the reason I, you know, not the only reason, but there was this big climate change story last year that went international. And it talked about how climate change and the term was being banned in Florida. And we're going to talk quite a bit about that. But, you know, partly I, I think what I want to dig into is what it's like to be a reporter to talk about these issues. And, you know, my guests so far have been scientists and planners, and so I've never talked to a reporter before, and so I didn't know what my approach should be. Should this bo- me be more like a, a red carpet interview at the Oscars? <laughs> uh, no, that's not necessary. Okay. <laughs> so, oh, I just lob you these softballs, or should I just just do my pull along? You know, I'm I'm not too far from the Washington Post. I just you know maybe I should be inspired by them. So maybe somewhere in between is what we'll talk about. But first off, just I I wanted to give you a chance to sort of give a little bit of background about yourself. You know, most people don't I think don't really understand what reporters are and how you do things. And that's sort of what I want to get to. But just your background, you're in Florida, you're in Miami, right? Correct. Yeah, I I live in Miami Beach. And I've been uh, reporting down here for, you know, a fair amount of time. Of late, I am independent. So I work, you know, I do stories for different places, which is my preferred mode of existence. Although just previously, for two years, I ran the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting, a nonprofit uh, that obviously invested in uh, in-depth reporting that we would we would run in partner newspapers and radio stations and TV stations throughout the state. But now I do a lot of magazine work, still do radio work, uh, and I still do newspaper work as well. We'll have this on the website, but you know all your articles from your your time there are still available. I, f- I find those, and so your your record is still you know available for people who are interested in those stories. So that's great. It's a great resource of all the work that you did there prior. So, well, so are you a Florida native, or are you a transplant from somewhere? No, I, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. <laughs> that's and, right. <laughs> and I did my early reporting years were in newspapers throughout you know New York uh, State, and I spent time in New England, and I and I came down here for a job. I never, you know, it, it was not a goal of mine to live in the subtropics. I thought people who wanted to, get, you know, wanted to escape winter were wimps. 
Uh, but I've come to love it. I really, uh, you know, I really responded to especially South Florida, both both its um, flora and fauna, which is just, you know, crazy if you grew up in the north to, to live in the, you know, see palm trees all the time and huge lizards that swim up under our deck and uh, <laughs> parrots in the trees outside my office. It's, it's still kind of thrilling to me. Well, I grew up in Florida, and I never get tired of seeing an alligator. It still yes. thrills me. I'm like, look at this giant dinosaur. They are crazy. Five feet away from me. But So you, you did some work up in New York, and so I don't – I mean, my impression is that it's kind of a rough-and-tumble area for doing um, journalism, so that probably served you well going down to Miami. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, for whatever reason, I've always wanted to be independent. I, I always wanted to be a freelancer for – you know, the goal was to work for big magazines. And in and New York is, you know, ground zero for that. But the cost of living and the competitiveness kind of interfere with developing good work. So I was able to move down here. I had a staff job at, a, at the Miami New Times. Um, that's the reason I came down here, which was a great job because they just sort of said, go out and write magazine quality stories about our community. But the cost of living was so so much less that it was like I had play money all of a sudden. <laughs> wow, that's nice to know. Well, and, and so Miami in itself kind of attracts a certain, I think, journalist mindset. I mean, you, you probably know enough reporters and journalists down there now that you guys have a love-hate relationship with Florida. I mean, it's, it's a kind of a nut job state, and you, you get that sense from how reporters cover it. So, I mean, do, do you feel that way with the other reporters in, in the area, South Florida especially? Yeah, I think there's a... There's an occupational, I wouldn't say hazard, but an, but an occupational bias. If you're a reporter, you don't really want to live in a calm, stable community. You want to be where there's work to be done. And that's definitely Florida. There, you know, It's on the forefront of so many issues, from immigration to climate change, that there's just a plethora of stories. And you feel like, yeah, you're, you're, you're kind of being useful working down here. Well, you, you probably read it, but um, one of my favorite books all time is The Swamp. Yeah. And so that writer, he, he writes for The Washington Post, but is he from Florida? I didn't quite catch that. No, Michael Grunwald. He, uh, he's left The Post. He's now at Time Magazine. Okay. Uh, and he moved here. He was living, I think, in D.C. <laughs> and he moved here and stayed here. He also, I assume, fell in love with the place. I, I haven't spoken to him in years, but, but, well, that's not true. I spoke to him recently, but, but yeah, he's one of the guys down here who, you know, you bump into at press conferences and stuff. Yeah, it was, it was a great book. I liked his narrative, how he set it up. Like, Florida kept fighting it back against this development, be it hurricanes or whatever, but, you know, finally the Army Corps came down and just tamed the beast, and it's sort of sad, but great book. Yeah. Well, that, another question for you is, you know, are there any writers that are doing the sort of work that you do that you admire just the other names out there are in are you would you consider yourself an environmental journalist or i mean you, you run the gamut i mean I, I run the gamut i do i have for years i mean certainly environmental issues are one of the topics i pride myself on covering and i've done it for years and Sort of when I was beginning freelancing, I was writing for the Nature Conservancy magazine, and, and I still do stuff for Sierra magazine, which is Sierra Club's magazine, covering environmental issues. I'm not an expert, and I'm not a, a full-time environmental journalist. I just, when I find a good story, I try and run with it. As far as people I admire, I mean, I doubt there's anybody higher up in sort of the, the, the long-form journalism world than Elizabeth Colbert and her work on climate change and, you know, its impacts on animals and plants and, you know, in, in, in great detail, but 
that can be told with in a wonderfully compelling way, which is the challenge to keep people interested in this and and not have them tune out because it's so such a grandiose topic occurring on such a global level yeah her books are yeah i mean they're they're journalism but at the same time you get a sense that you know these are almost going to be like history books they're just so dense and they're going to be very useful for years to come so yeah (laughs) great choice Uh, any other particular writers or anybody locally that put on the radar that we consider reading well locally so the there's a guy who's been covering you know, sort of as a newspaper reporter, been covering the state environmental agencies for years named Craig Pittman. And he's he's really great, too, and knows this stuff inside and out. And he works at this, the Tampa Bay Times. And he's got a book out now called Oh, Florida. And I think it's just I haven't read it, but I believe it's sort of a about the wackiness of Florida. <laughs> uh, but he's, he's a good environmental writer and he's local and uh, he's been doing it for years and knows more than he'll forget more than I'll know probably about Florida's agencies specifically. And so Tampa Bay Times, that's actually a merger of two newspapers, right? That's relatively recent. Well, right. They used to be the St. Petersburg Times. They changed their name to Tampa Bay Times. Okay. That's that's different. But then they bought out their competitor, the Tampa Tribune, uh, recently and essentially closed it and <laughs> got rid of the competition. Uh, but the Tampa Tribune was, you know, it's that was one of the last cities with a, that was a two-newspaper town, you know, it, which used to be the norm. Yeah, uh, Washington's going through its own sort of fits. You know, I growing up, I grew up in Sarasota, Florida, and so we had a Sarasota Herald-Tribune. And, and to be quite honest, I didn't enjoy the paper. I'm And for whatever number of reasons, I don't know if you know anybody there. But, yeah, we. it's interesting how you kind of build allegiance to papers and such. And that was my main newspaper growing up. Yeah. No, I, I know I know editors at the Sarasota Herald Tribune. I know I was on the board of the Florida Society of News Editors when I was at uh, FCIR, and it really impressed upon me how important local newspapers are and how and and how threatened they are. You know, these guys are all trying to figure out where the money is going to come from in the future. And and I tell you, without daily newspapers going to those boring board meetings and even writing those boring stories, uh, you won't know what the developers are up to and, and who they're influencing and what politician is being, you know, squired away on a helicopter golfing trip by these guys. It's super important stuff done at the local level. And I just, you know, I can't it, it, it took reemerging myself into the newspaper world working at FCIR to, to understand how how valuable these guys really are. Naples Daily News, Sarasota, Tampa, Miami. These guys are doing great work holding officials accountable. Well, yeah, the the idea of even reading a newspaper in your hands is being lost. I love it. I get up every morning, coffee and newspaper, but it's a dying form. And, you know, even my young son, I, I hand him the, the funny pages just so he can have it in his hands as he's reading through it. He gets a, a tradition of it and have him look at the front page or something. So well, that pivot online, I mean, it hasn't completely happened yet, but I think newspapers are still trying to figure that out. So, Yeah, that, it's uh, <laughs> one, of the, one, of my, one of the reasons why I left full-time employment was because I thought it would be, I saw the writing on the wall, this is 2006, this is before the recession, and I saw the writing on the wall that it might be better to reach out and have revenue sources from, you know, a radio station, a magazine, a newspaper, rather than just be at staff at one place as their uh, ad revenue was shrinking. <laughs> so, yeah. 
But I mean, that, that doesn't help the newspapers at all. <laughs> I don't know what the answer is. Well, I'll keep subscribing. I love them. Okay, good. <laughs> so, Tristan, I want to jump into, you know, the big topic here, the story. You know, cl Florida bans the use of climate change. And right. I, I want to give a little context here for listeners. And so, first of all, you wrote this story, and we, I want to get into that a little bit on how that kind of unfolded. But just give people, you know, this thing went crazy. And I, I don't know the timeline, and I'm sure you tracked it, but, like, Everyone picked it up. It was showing yeah. up in the Huffington Post, the New Republic. You actually, they just used your article, I think. The, no, I wrote a, I wrote a piece for them. A different right piece. Okay. Yeah, a different piece. Okay, so the, um, BBC News, Washington Post. It, you know, there's even reference oh. to the topic on the Daily Show. Uh, you, yeah, you know, you know, you've made it big in in journalism when the uh, when the Comedy Central folks make make jokes with your story. Yes, <laughs> I mean it was a home run, and then like President is doing some event in, at the Everglades and he doesn't necessarily mention his story, but it was obviously a, a, a oh, he references to, it. Right. Yeah, yeah. He referenced it. He said, uh, you can't edit out. Right. Okay. Change. You can't deny it. Uh, it was a clear reference to the governor. No, we, we, yeah, we, it blew up. Right. Blew up. And so it broke the internet. <laughs> and I think what people are very interested in, like, you know, behind the scenes of you, as you, as a reporter doing these things. So I've joked with you before, so like that Monday back at the office, I mean, were you kind of like strutting in and, you know, just kind of <laughs> with a certain swagger to your coworkers after that story? I mean, it just, it was a home run. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't expect, I didn't think you were swagging, but you know what I'm talking about. That's just yeah. every reporter's dream kind of thing. It, it was, it was. It's clearly the, the story that that has had the most response that I've ever done. This was on, we, it published on March 8th. Uh, 2015. And so that was a Sunday, right? So Sunday. And I knew it was going to be big when the Washington Post, a reporter from the Washington Post called me to interview me about the story. Wow. And I was like, that's kind of weird. You know, the story's already out there. You can just reference the story. Uh, but they wanted to interview me. And, and I did. And then the next day, and then, you know, it, we were getting, if we put alerts on Google alerts on the story and you could see that it was just being picked up all over the place. And yeah, it, it, it went quote unquote viral. You know, my sister had told me she, she, she understands why, because everything is encapsulated in the headline in Florida, officials ban term climate change. And that sort of says it all. And it, and it struck the, the nerve, it, it's, it, it got at a lot of people's frustration with sort of this uh, political stalemate we were in um, about addressing the issue. And it was pretty conclusive. I mean, we had, you know, we had it down. There was no, there was no he said, she said, <laughs> although they, although the governor never admitted to it. And uh, but he's never been able to deny the evidence we presented. So these two French journalists, independent of each other, before the Paris climate talks, these two French journalists, one radio, public radio, he's based in Ecuador, and another TV, public TV, came and interviewed me about the climate change stories. And you could tell, I mean, it was like, oh, those crazy Americans, this is crazy Florida. It was like we were a laughingstock, and, and rightfully so. Uh, and then I asked them, so in your country, you don't have any organized opposition to climate change like we do here? And, and these guys are you know, independent of each other, and they both think for a little bit. And they're like, no, no, not really. That's nuts. So it's, it's been a little bit of time since the story. So, I mean, could you quickly summarize what was the gist of the story? I mean, you mentioned okay. this headline, but like literally what, what was the story about? So can I actually, instead of quickly, can I sort of chronologically just take you through it, how it came to our attention? Is that okay? Yeah, even better. Even better. Okay. So we, 
you know, uh, Florida Center for Investigative Reporting, the only prerogative in, in doing in work there is that the, the story has to be relevant to the state of Florida. Uh, so we don't do really local stuff. We try and do statewide stuff of statewide concern. And this sort of environmental educator named Jim Harper uh, sent me a note saying, you know, I um, I'm tired of these state officials telling me I can't use uh, the term climate change when I try, you know, when they want me to. Uh, go on a, a you know to, to talk at a school group or a church group or something and and I was like what <laughs> so I contacted Jim and he showed me some emails and and w- what had happened was in 2013 Jim was contracted by the, the state's Department of Environmental Protection to write a series of educational fact sheets on uh, threats to coral reefs we know coral reefs are have diminished by like 90. Five percent in 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 this country. Florida is the only place that really has them, other than maybe maybe Hawaii. And so he wanted to address most the gr- the greatest threat to them right now is you know a climate change, you know a warming ocean, etc. And they told him no, you can't. So he showed me an email depicting that. And then a year later, 2014, he he, he they complete their project on that. And a year later, he volunteers to go to schools and church groups and sort of do a PowerPoint presentation that the DEP has prepared. And he says, but you're not mentioning climate change. And again, they tell him, yeah, we're, not, we're staying away from that one. So he had he had documented that. And, and I looked at that and I thought, well, I suspect this is greater than just this one little, you know, these little incidents. Uh, so I started, you know, trying to track down DEP officials who could talk about it, which really means ex-DEP officials, right? Because the current ones aren't going to talk. They're very good at wanting to hold on to their jobs. And I did. I found some really compelling individuals. One of them was Chris Bird. He had been in the, he had been in the DEP's Tallahassee headquarters uh, as, an, as an attorney for them, an enforcement attorney. And he stated bluntly, yep, we were told at a staff meeting after Rick Scott was elected governor do not use the term climate change or global warming in any official correspondence, you know, emails, reports, et cetera. And, and he named names and I, you know, I contacted the people he named and nobody would comment back to Jim Harper in Miami. One of the DEP officials who told him he couldn't use climate change or global warming in the, in the presentation was a woman named Christina Trotta. And while I was reporting on this, Christina left the DEP and I was able to contact her, and she said, yep, I was just, those were my orders. I was passing them down to Jim and others that they couldn't use the term. We were told in a staff meeting uh, we can't use the term climate change or global warming, and that sea level rise was to be referred to as nuisance flooding. <laughs> <laughs> so we then, you know, reviewed documents so that, you know, a, a, among them, a, an annual report put out by the uh, Coastal Council, Florida Coastal Council, which is put out by the DEP, but it involves input from different state agencies. And you can see right up until uh, Rick Scott was elected, uh, they are mentioning climate change. They're calling it a, a, a research priority. They're calling it one of the things they have to be deal with. And then after Rick Scott, boom, the reference is gone. The only time it's referenced is if it's in the title of a in a footnote as the title of a previous paper or previous conference or something. Uh, and then eventually we did a, a data analysis of the DEP's website and showed that, yes, once again, since Rick Scott became governor, 
references those those terms started dropping off year by year so the year before scott was was elected it was i don't know 200 some references and then every year it drops drops and then our last check when the story came out in march uh there were zero references zero new references on their website hmm. so it was pretty crazy and it was uh pretty outrageous that the state with the most to lose from you know these environmental changes including sea level rise would have leaders who would deny its cause it just boggled the imagination that was the overall just then there was all kinds of fallout yeah of yeah. course i mean it once so it it blew up and literally the story went all over the world and again i'm kind of you know i'm not saying oh i'm such a great journalist this happened it was just we we stumbled on this we did a pretty good job of documenting it uh, and it blew up. So, I mean, China, Japan, yeah, wow. uh, Norway, Italy, we were getting reports from every friends of mine who live abroad were writing, you know, because they would, <laughs> they would, these other media, all of them referenced FCIR because it, some of the work was kind of exclusive to us. The data analysis, the sources had talked to us. So they all had to reference FCIR. And then, yes, it made, um, the daily show and it made all kinds of, you know, the, 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 the late night comedians are not, they're not even late night. They're just, but the, the HBO shows, et cetera. There were, there, there were other wonderful things. There was a, some musicians who made a song of, <laughs> that was really funny. I can't remember the lyrics now, but it was very professionally done and funny. So, but more gratifying than just the attention was that, you know, there, there were some, there was some response. Okay. So Florida government went into shutdown mode and wouldn't talk about it. Well, our, our sub subsequent stories, we, we found out that the ban extended to, you know, there was evidence it was at the department of transportation, the department of health and, uh, you know, elsewhere. Uh, so now, now let me, now let me bring you into the story. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I was going to ask if like, I was, had more questions about process with the original story, but go on, go on. Uh, we'll go back to those. So I contacted you as an ex Florida wildlife commission employee who had been in charge of the state's first climate change initiative at that agency. And I asked you, I wanted, I was, I knew that I, I was sure that agency had to be in denial as well. <laughs> and, and you didn't really, you didn't tell me that. And I was like, dang, you know, I don't know what's going on. I, I subsequently went on and, and did my research and found out that the FWC indeed has on their website a climate change 101 they have how we are adapting to climate change they are they are on the front lines of modeling you know sea level rise etc and what i realize ultimately what i realize is they are an independent commission mm -hmm. they do not answer to the governor so they were freed from this from these prohibitions and it was that was pretty amazing it was almost like proving the point negatively right? right by the fact that they could do it and they were independent just highlighted how ridiculous it was that everybody else was um was denying it well i do remember the phone call and it was fascinating and it brings back memories all that content on the fwc website it's still there today but yeah. that's all my baby we, we we got that stuff up there and you mentioned that the nuance of the commission too though and that they still have to be careful because the commission i think it's seven or eleven 
um, they're appointed by the governor, but they cycle, yeah. I think, every two, three years. And so he can, over time, and since he's going to be a two-term governor, he's going to have his fingerprints all over that commission. And so the executive director of FWC's Nick Wiley. He's independent on paper, but, you know, you can't go against what the governor's saying. And so I, I, I sympathize a lot with what a lot of those people have to kind of deal with. So there, there's truth to what you're saying is that they are an independent agency, but you are like you still operate as if like you don't want to piss off the governor unless like, there's something completely hostile and you just have to go in defense mode. You still don't right. want to piss them off. And you know, I forgot if I told you, but I remember when there was that transition and especially when the legislature got really more conservative. I mean, I was still there and, you know, we decided that, OK, we we were doing a lot of stuff internally, but we weren't going to necessarily promote it. So we, we did communication, right. but we shut that down. And no one told us to shut it down. And uh, you know, I'm not going to even implicate my bosses per se. It's just I was using my own judgment. And yeah. that website, I we were told early on that you know people like staffers within the Capitol are scouring state agency websites. And so not that I did anything illegal here, but it's just like, oh, well, maybe we need to take it down for maintenance. Which, yeah, yeah. Which we did. We That's, took it down and we did maintenance. We did nothing wrong. And then we put it back up. And yeah. I'm not going to implicate my higher ups in any way. That's yeah. what I did. And so right, we, right, we weren't right. dumb about it. But it, it the idea of being totally independent, it wasn't. It was still like you have to be kind of on your tiptoes. So you're absolutely right. And, and it brings up a good point. So which and I'm of a split mind about it. They not only are they can the governor appoint commission members, but they do have to have their budget approved by the legislature. Yes. Yeah. So they are vulnerable that way, too. And right. So I don't know if writing about them as an outlier on this helped them at all. I, I suspected it didn't. I suspected it made their lives a little worse other than maybe the public could trust them a little more. The the issues I ran into this with these employees at the DEP, you know, none who would speak to me, even off the record, it was very hard. But they were like, yeah, so they were frustrated that this was in place, but they were still doing their job. And and, and one of the ways they could do their job and, and address these things was to not bring attention to themselves. If you don't bring attention to yourselves, you can quietly work on this stuff. So as a member of the, you know, as a taxpaying member of the public, I'm thinking, well, this is ridiculous. These people should stand up and and denounce this. You know, they're scientists and they're being told by a politician they can't use these. They can't reference this scientific phenomenon that's occurring. That's the that's sort of the journalist in me, the guy who gets pissed off. The, the I understand the pragmatism of of navigate. They're in this for the long haul. They're going to be working for 25 years at the agency. Governors come and go. Mm -hmm. uh, the public is fickle. And just keep your head down and do the work. And don't bring attention to yourself. In this case, I, I still feel like, obviously, attention needed to be brought to the situation. And if there ever was a time to stand up and say something, it was it was now. Well, and I would like to add to why FWC, it, another reason it's unique is like their emphasis is on adaptation. Like, how are you going to adapt to climate right. change? Whereas DEP, I can appreciate, they start verging into like, okay, what about the energy issue here? Yeah. And is it going to cost money where FWC's mission is to protect wildlife? 
and there's not going to be a lot of like decisions that are going to impact people that come out of the adaptation world anytime soon. And so they're able to fly under the radar a bit. But, you know, just I'm not sure if you picked up, but when I was there before Rick Scott came on, you know, DP led the whole initiative under Charlie Crist, did some great work. But then right when it got into like implementation phase, we took off at FWC, but at DP, they weren't doing squat. There was one person there who wanted to do something. So like every six months or something, I would check in with him and I'd be like, okay, what are you guys doing? And it wasn't anything political. I just think it was this sort of inertia of the agency. And, you know, they had programs tied to grants and it's just a lack of, I think, creativity from maybe some of the staff, but they weren't doing squat. I was kind of upset. It's just like you thought they would have been a really good partner and they, they weren't. So, so, so when I called you, I, I, I didn't know you. I just, I, you know, this person, I had talked to this person, talked to this person who, and I was looking for people and they said, well, try Doug. He, he was, you were the, what was the title? Climate, Climate change, change coordinator. That's coordinator. And then you left and I was convinced you had left because you had been forced out or they, they were phasing out that. I don't, you know, I, I think you since told me that wasn't the case, uh, but, this, uh, but that you did see the writing on the wall. That's probably more accurate. It's just, you know, more opportunities nationally and just like it, you kind of go into regression mode at the state. So there's some truth to it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I wasn't forced out though. No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. But I was convinced I was in like, you know, uh, uh, attack mode and trying to find out everything. Um, but that's pretty funny that, that, that you, so you left, you abandoned Florida in its time of need. (laughs) Damn it. It's true. You know, um, and Florida is still doing some amazing work on adaptation planning. I still in touch with a lot of those guys, but you know, I went to go work for the national park service and I had been part of a lot of national conversations because they bring state people in. And so it was just exciting for me, but yeah, I guess part of it, it was just like, you know, I didn't, and I didn't even necessarily see like, what's the future of climate change? Even at FWC, they're going to kind of chug along, but like when it comes to additional funding and really upscale what, I mean, as you can appreciate now, it's like climate change is going to be Florida's defining issue for the next yeah. 200 years. Oh, yeah. And it was just a nickel and diming. And I, you were absolutely right. There are people that are sticking it out there and doing great work. And I left for greener pastures in some way. And, you know, it's kind of funny. Right when I arrived at the National Park Service, that whole continuing resolution of 2012 came in. And so my climate change program at the Park Service took a 70% program cut by Congress two weeks after I started. So I walked right into a buzzsaw even as yeah. I moved nationally. So, But no, I feel sort of bad that I banned <laughs> Thank you. So the last story I did on this, on this series, the last story I did for FCIR was about sort of this – the unbelievable change. I mean, there had been before Scott, Florida under Christ, Florida had been one of the most progressive states aiming to deal with climate change. We had uh, a climate change, you know, Governor Christ had, a, and he was a Republican and the, and the mm. House and Senate were Republican, as they always are here. And they passed emissions reform laws to bring us back to 1990 levels by 2020, they passed, they had a a conference, they set up a climate change task force that took all the university studies and sort of sifted through them to find out what the most immediate threats and how to deal with them were. I mean, it was really amazing stuff. And if we had stayed on that track, so this is 2007 on, and if we had stayed on that track, 
we would be in a vastly different place than we are now. Now we're in, you know, we're in adaptation mode here. There is no mitigation substantively to speak of. You know, some might argue with that, but I'll, I'll, I'll go into that in a little bit. But we passed these, and they were all, and 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 Christ was alerted to the issue of climate change by John McCain. He had never heard of it before. And John, he's sitting in a meeting with John McCain in the Biltmore Hotel in 2005. And he's about to leave. They're, they're, Christ is running for governor. McCain's running for president. And McCain says, hey, Charlie, there's one last thing before you leave. One last thing you should, you should focus on, and that's climate change. It's going to be a big deal. And Chris said, I, okay, I'd never heard of it before. And he started looking into it and became really concerned. And it's just amazing that in that period, that was all the Republicans. You know, it was part of the Republican Party platform in that election <laughs> to deal with climate change. Newt Gingrich did a public service announcement with Nancy Pelosi yep, yep, yep. On, on the need to address climate change. And it's amazing that it went from that to to um, um, it's really, really unfortunate that's such a political issue now, but that, that that the party has just dropped it completely, if not actively obstructed uh, any any advancement in that area at a federal level. Well, I mean, you are describing sort of this golden age when it came to Republicans and climate change, but sort of stepping back even further, it is still a little disturbing to me that it takes a side conversation for someone to get caught up of the defining issue of you know the century, and you know it, that stuff happens. But it's like this science overall just is, it's it's not getting out and being absorbed by leaders properly and independent of what's happened to the Republican Party in the last five years. That's it's anecdotal. Oh, you should look into this. That's crazy, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Your second big article was a, a tale of two agencies, and I, I've loved all your stories. There's been more than just that, and I think you had oh, yeah. some other reporters dealing with it. You had like sort of a Chris record versus a Rick Scott record. And I'm curious, you, you've talked to these people, and you say you you just can't get people who are currently working in these agencies to go on the record, and I totally get that. And as a reporter, mm -hmm. that must be so vexing and it's for you to get to the truth. But, you know, what – as a reporter, how do you weigh in? Like, you get some incredible scoop, but it could potentially lead to being this this employee being fired. And so, they don't care enough about the topic, even though they want to help. And yet, you're there. Your job is to report, and their job is to get a paycheck and support. I mean, it just to me, it's, right. I guess getting to the issue of journalism, and that must be so tough. So that is tough, and it's you know whether it's this story or others, to convince somebody to put their livelihood on the line or their life, in, in some cases, on the line to, to, by speaking out, it's a difficult thing, and, and, and you don't do it lightly. In this case, I really felt very, I felt very strongly that more people needed to speak out who were inside the agency. None did for those initial stories. Uh, but they, they really – they were obligated to. They were public employees. This was a, a, a travesty that that this censorship was going on. I mean it was horrible. So I didn't really have any dilemmas. I would have – I would have – I was you know ready to force people to, to do stuff. <laughs> um, but it came together. You know, it came together well. Uh, we had really – you know, Chris Bird, the, the attorney, was a really credible guy. Christina Trotta. It was crazy that she was – you know, one of the ones enforcing the rule, and then she leaves and says, yeah, I was 
following orders. I mean, that that also helped out a lot. But I do wish that that I mean, I guess as a journalist, when I had a full time job, you know, I'd fight with my bosses all the time. If something if we did something really unethical, I wouldn't have been able to stand it. You know, if uh, uh, don't cover this because some big advertiser says not to. That would be untenable for me. I would leave my position. I, I feel that strongly about the work I do. Why didn't any of these DEP scientists feel the same way? Why haven't they written a joint letter with a hundred names on it saying, "Yes, we oppose this policy," the, you know, protection in numbers? And I mean, you you talked about their desire to keep their jobs, and I I talked about how. Maybe one strategy was just keep your head down and and uh, avoid the the conflict. But but in retrospect, I mean, really, can you? Well, have you ever it's worked? Coward, for the... It's cowardice. It's cowardice. <laughs> so, have you ever worked for the government? I have, yeah. Because so, um, uh, you can probably then appreciate. I mean, I'm trying to get in the heads of these state employees. I'm used to working in some place three to four years, and I just want to move on. I got to do something right. different. But the idea of having your pension and like a yeah. government employee there's a certain mindset it's a very conservative one i'm gonna get this job i got it great i've made it into the system i'm gonna stay here for 25 30 years and the idea in year 17 i'm gonna talk to a reporter that could somehow compromise all this i sort of get it and because it would compromise it because you would just uh, there would be payback even within good agencies and you know, I was as you were describing talking to folks. I, I just wonder, had you contacted me right toward the end when I was the climate change coordinator at FWC, I wonder what I would have said to you. Because, you know, my liberal kind of gut reaction would be like, "Oh yeah, man, it's, <laughs> there's a darkness in the air." Or would I have just gone into like, "Oh, I got to be part of the team," you know? I just, it's, well, it's, let me ask you. Let me ask you. As a when a reporter contacts you, you don't know me. I mean, what what do you think? Like, can I trust this guy? Is he or is he gonna you know hack up my quotes and and you know leave me dangling out there? I mean, did I? What kind of impression did I give you? And this is fascinating for me as well. What kind of impression did I give you when I when I talked to you? Did I seem credible or like what the hell is FCIR? Who are you? Well, I think you are probably instantly credible just because someone referred me to you and so i guess it, it just really quickly in my head i'm filtering all right so you know but that that's not a very good way to do it but no in the, the nature of our conversation and then as we talk through ultimately what you wanted to cover in that story i was comfortable and your questions to me were very you wanted to do the right thing i sense from this story and you you know you remember the sort of like give and take we had on some of these issues and i mean i i quickly just got up you seem like and of course it could have been like you were a reporter for the national review or something and just could have totally burned me but no I, I didn't sense that at all but you know had i been at fwc you know they teach you pretty quickly like you know they have a communications person they have a media person and it's not your job to go on the record like that and i was savvy enough that i knew climate change was such a hot potato issue that i would have been very careful and so yeah. if i knew i was leaving two months later i might have done something but you also have to factor in that I'm talking to you now, but I don't necessarily want to burn my old um, compatriots at the agency either. You know, these uh, and I don't think I'm doing it here at all. This is nothing really that new, and just I, I like to brag about what they do. But it, so many things are stacked up against you as a reporter to get to the truth. It, the, the system is set up yeah. that way, and the nature of the you know budgeting and all that it's just, it's there like you know we will punish you if you do things that we don't like you know the elected officials so 
So, so you know, even revisiting this series of stories, I get upset. I get so upset that the governor gets away with not addressing it, all right? This big controversy is exposed, causes worldwide interest, and all, the only thing he said is, it's not true, there's no policy. Well, uh, which probably on the face of it is technically accurate. There's no written policy. But uh, so address the rest of this stuff. People are concerned. This, I mean, there's so much concern about it that he's dogged at every press conference afterwards by other reporters asking, well, what about this report? What about this report? And even to this day. And so, you know, so many questions remain about why this would be in place, what they hope to accomplish. My big question when I was doing these stories was, OK, if. You just can't say these words, but you continue doing the work. You know, as we talked about, you keep your head down and do the work. Does it even, does it impact it or does it impact the work being done to mitigate or adapt? Or does ban, do, does banning these terms put a, put a chill on the work itself? I come down on the latter. I just don't see a way around that, but. Well, of but course, those are some of the questions, of course, because if you can't publicly talk about these things or do a public events, you're right. not attracting people out there that are, are going to help you or you could help them. And that's an exchange right. of information. Now, these are all things that kind of add up to, like, how you become more effective. And, you know, one of the questions I had here for you about the governor you know, it all came back to him. The governor bans it. But, you know, in your articles, you have like middle managers who it was sort of said in this meeting, that meeting. I mean, it so was what's the closest it ever came from coming directly from Rick Scott that you encountered? Was it anecdotal from, OK, this employee off the record said, yeah, yep. the governor said it. Was there a moment yep. like that? Yeah. The uh, manager at the DEP Coral Reef Conservation Pro Project who told her, the staff this is a directive from the governor's office and, and we're employees of the, you know, we, we, and we serve at his will, hmm. but you know, it's, you know, I, I don't have it in writing. The governor wouldn't comment on it at the time has denied that there's a policy, uh, you know, but no firsthand accounts of like, okay, this person was with the governor and the governor said this, said that. No, no. And I tried, I tried, you know, it's a, once you get into the governor's circle, people are interacting with the governor. It's, it, they're all pretty friendly, you know. It's, it's like his advisors and his chief of staff. So I contacted former chiefs of staff, and uh, most of them wouldn't wouldn't uh, respond. Well, the, you hate to get to sort of the conspiracy, but this is the system. And so even though they didn't care for that policy, well, they're the former chief of staff, and they want to go work for this consulting firm. Right. Exactly. And it's just like, well, why am I going to burn a bridge with this governor just to give this reporter a lead? You know. It's exactly. Just, you start in a hole, so. Yeah, it was almost it was it was difficult in the sense you were trying to prove a negative, right? Yeah. D don't do this is is what you're trying to prove was was in effect. And so that came through these these sources who heard the order firsthand, and then it also came through the the sort of the circumstantial evidence of the disappearance of this term from documents where it had, that had previously held the term. Well, do you think that there is a potential story here once the governor leaves? Let's say a liberal Democrat comes in and is just wants to tackle climate change, and then all of a sudden you might have a ton of employees who are willing to go on the record and talk. You mean, what would the story be there, or is it too late, or is there any legal kind of implications to any of that? So it's 
too late. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> I did those first stories and there was a tremendous response, but even I recognize, really, I want to take this to another level. I don't want to just sit here pointing fingers and writing about what appears to be a ideological divide in this country. I mean, it's an important divide and, and we have to acknowledge it, but, um, but I want to, I want to get on to more substantive issues. And, and so then what I thought was really interesting was that in the absence of any state leadership, we had municipalities, you know, taking on the burden of dealing with this. <clears throat> so individually, Miami-Dade County, Broward County, Palm Beach, and Monroe counties were all kind of appealing for help to the feds um, to deal with sea level rise issues. And then they, they were all bumping into each other in the corridors in D.C. and said, oh, hey, wait a minute, we're all here on the same issue. Why don't we band together? So we have this four-county compact now mm -hmm. that has been running for years and doing really good stuff. They they coordinate their their the models on on saltwater intrusion and sea level rise. Um, I know that they are all. I know in Miami Dade and, and uh, Broward, they're I assume the others as well. They're working on creating county fleets that are hybrid. You know, they're on on increasing the number of electric portals for electric vehicles, portals for electric vehicles. Um, all the stuff that my God. It, you could go back in time in this alternate reality, and if we had stuck with, you know, the Chris initiatives, we'd have all this stuff by now. You know, it would be. I wanted to buy an electric, an electric car. <laughs> I was looking at some used ones, but I had to research where the closest portals were to get charged because I live in a uh, in an apartment building, and I can't run a cord from my apartment all the way out to the parking lot. <laughs> so, and and they're and it's difficult. They're not around, but that should be. That should be out there. You know, those things should be a priority for our government. Well, I, I had a chance to interview the governor of Vermont a couple of years ago who, I mean, Vermont, nothing like Florida, right? right. Liberal, kind of libertarian bent to it. And he campaigned on climate change. <laughs> um, awesome. And, you know, at, at a time when it was just – the recession was going on, the Pew – had just put out this uh, poll on American attitudes towards climate change, and it was dropping. It had been a real concern, and then during the recession, it dropped as as money worries, et cetera, uh, trumped it. And but this guy was like, "Yeah, I'm going to get portals everywhere. We're going to get, we're going to close down this." this yeah, he was closing down an aged nuclear facility. That, that's not necessarily a climate change advance but anyways and we're going to get and we're going to become the number one state in renewables and getting those so he was really and I, and and the contrast to florida was was so stark so stark yeah you know i live in tacoma park maryland and people affectionately call it the people's republic of tacoma park and i'm about 200 yards from a public electric station like <laughs> i mean so they, they they get it here you know yeah. um, it, it's nice and it, you know it this just shows how crazy the united states is that there's such diversity on it so just um, i wanted to kind of pivot in the, the the final part of this this conversation we're having which this has been fantastic but the idea of you being a reporter covering the issue of climate change and i think of that story you have a tale of two agencies and i look at that and to me there's two issues there the big story is okay you have one agency that's not doing anything and then you have another agency that's doing a ton but as an environmental reporter and i know this is a new emerging issue but do you 
do you feel like you have the skills in the background? Like, let's say you were doing a story just on FWC. What if of all those things that they were doing, they're doing it wrong or they're not doing the right things? I mean, do you feel like the reporters have a long way to go to really catch up to like understanding how to report on? And I'm dealing with yes. adaptation. So, yeah. Just okay. Thoughts on that. You're, you're, you're welcome to say if you thought that piece was facile. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I get it. I, I, no, we're not, we're not, I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert. I try and read the papers. I try and, you know, keep up. I guess, you know, reporters can be, can become experts in, in this, but we rely on people like you, people who are in the field, who we trust and, and can point us to the, the data and the facts that we need to write our stories. So no. And I did feel, you know, as I, as I got, as I got going on this thing and there was a lot of momentum pushing us, right? There's a lot of interest, people referencing us and contacting us, et cetera, et cetera. I felt an impetus to keep the story alive. Right. But I, but I was not the best judge of whether these initiatives were meaningful or impactful or, um, or a waste of taxpayer money. I can admit that now. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm not a journalist, but I'm sure there's institutes and there's other resources out there that are trying to help. We have this reporter. I'm sure you've heard of him, Chris Booney. Up, he's working for the Washington Post, and he really puts out some amazing pieces on, on climate change. But to me, the coverage of the issue around adaptation, it's they still haven't figured out. You know, climate change, most of it is about carbon emissions and that kind of talk, and then a lot of it is on climate impacts because that's sexy. But the idea of how we're going to adapt to it, that I don't think the the media has quite figured out what it means to cover that and so right it yeah it's a hard story to to you know we're i'm constantly thinking all right i know this is an important issue but what's the best vehicle to tell it what's the best if i just put out if the story is not made compelling people won't read it mm-hmm. and they might tune out other stories so you're constantly looking for and and often that means yeah there's a there's a conflict right there's this agency that's doing one thing and this agency that's not doing anything so it's a kind of a stark contrast, and it's kind of cartoonish, but it, it kept the issue alive. It, it you know, it was legitimate it, it, to what we were facing and how the government was responding. So I, you know, I I, I stand by it in all in that respect. Um, I'm not attacking that piece, not at all. It's more of just the broader issue of like, and the next step is that maybe there's a way that you even look at FWC and they're not doing enough. That's, I guess my implication is just like, um, yeah, yeah. Two different stories there. One of like right. this contrast and then like, well, you can even do better. The ones who are doing something you can do better. Yes, absolutely. Those, I mean, my, as a reader, my instinct would be, you know, that's sort of Monday morning quarterbacking. You need some event or some mm-hmm. development to pin that on, to show that, that their approach has been, whatever whatever agency we're talking about their approach has been uh uh like a days ago it's hard it was hard for me to think of of how to reframe this and how to do it in a way that is um that would continually capture people's imagination and it's hard for those guys at the big papers who are who this is their beat you know well i deal a lot with science communication and when you're dealing with climate change it becomes sort of this this bigger issue and one of the ways we talk about climate change, which really just kind of ticks me off is like, it's this really serious 
urgent issue, but everyone says, well, if you're too doom and gloom, people are going to check out. But I like to sort of like, okay, let's compare it to covering the issue of terrorism. And, you know, like even take 911 out of the equation, like the urgency that the media places on terrorism, how they cover it is truly unique. And I think it creates urgency with the public, whereas climate change, you know, oh, you're all doom and gloom. And the approach to a lot of climate change stories, I hate these stories. It's like, oh, climate change is going to impact the wine industry. It's like, yeah. oh, gosh. I mean, that's okay. That sucked. But it's like, you know, you wouldn't say it in the context of Al-Qaeda. You wouldn't say, oh, it's going to impact, you know, wine production if we get hit right. by a terrorist attack. Or when climate change advocates talk about, you know, educating children on this issue, and we don't go around educating children on the urgency of terrorism. It's too yeah. important. And like I think it's partly like oh, the media still hasn't figured that out. And, and I get when you're dealing with 50-year time frames, 75-year time frames. But like Miami, three feet of sea level rise is now a conservative number. That means Miami is gone, you know. But how do you report on that in a way that the public's like, wait a sec, let's take this seriously? Right. I think the public does take it seriously, but then it's like too depressing, and they and they tune it out, which is the the risk. I think that. You know, there's tremendous growth and opportunity. It sounds horrible, right? But there is like the the, the renewables. We've really ramped up uh, production. We've really ramped up the the technology, the the, the the capabilities of the solar panels and batteries, et cetera, uh, wind production, et cetera. So there is sort of not one optimistic route to take covering the growth of those industries. So you're kind of doing a good thing writing about it. You know, um, highlighting a growing industry and a growing industry that's going to help us to mitigate our our uh, emissions. You know, the more I learn about this, the more I realize that our response, nothing can ramp up fast enough, get us off our fossil fuel fast enough. Except there was a there was a good story in I mean, a very provocative story in Esquire magazine about James Hansen who is going to the world's most populous countries and trying to convince them to, to drastically and swiftly switch to nuclear power. Hmm. That, that's the only way we will, we will limit the emissions in any, in any meaningful way. And that the advances in nuclear power uh, technology and safety, et cetera, are, have been missed in this country i'm not an advocate for that i just was fascinated reading about it yeah uh we're we're have been missed in this country because it's a political you know third rail you can't go near nuclear power that was really fascinating to me i well the implication there's some to it but there's like oh, what about the risk of all this all this waste well independent uh, of it being a nuclear power just the, the implication of like how serious Heath? What what does he know? To me, that's what I read into that. It's just like yeah. what what he's the climatologist. What does he know? Right. Beyond, like, I mean, he's sharing everything, but like, what does he really think? Yeah. Um, I mean, other than that, we're not. There's no way to do this fast enough. Even if you got all the wind and and uh, solar energy up and running. Now, he, it would take too long, he, is his argument, the legislative uh, process itself. 
Well, you get in a room with like climate change people, and you you, you want to avoid them. You don't want to have drinks with these people. <laughs> and I'm 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 one of them. And this this whole podcast, I'm trying to be optimistic because actually I think the idea of adaptation, it's a, it's like you said, it's it's a, it's a positive journey forward, and that's what I'm really kind of going for. But yeah. you know, I first got into climate change when I was in Australia, and I saw this presentation from a climatologist, and you know, it was pretty sobering stuff. I mean, but it, and I went up to the guy afterward. I'm like, wow, that's pretty sobering. And I remember what he said to me. He's just like. Oh, that's the happy version. <laughs> and I just looked at him dumbfounded and he said and he said he didn't believe it. I mean, this wasn't some doom and gloom guy. He was very measured. And he's just like he's like a growing number of climatologists, and this was ten years ago, thinks that humanity will be living in small pockets near the poles by the end of the century. And I'm like, Holy crap. <laughs> this is what these people are thinking, you know? And the fact that they're being accused of, like, you know, the sky is falling, to, to be honest, I deal with scientists all the time, and they are the most conservative kind of spokespeople you'll right. ever encounter. And so, it again, it, it's come back, I guess I'm coming back to you, just need folks like you to not scare people, but recognize how urgent this issue is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we've covered so much um, interesting ground here. I, I wanted to, you know, what are you working on now? What, what, what's, what's, what's ahead for you? So I'll have a big story in GQ magazine, and it involves uh, hurricanes. So it's a, it's a narrative tale about a, a Coast Guard rescue, you know, during a hurricane. But because of all the work I've done on climate change and, and knowledge, I, I, I saw an opportunity to sort of be able to, you know, talk about the essentially the models and the forecasting that this is what we're going to face with a warmer ocean is uh, less frequent, but much more intense storms, so, you know, so much, you know, more category four hurricanes last year, right after this hurricane that I'm writing about, there was a category five, the strongest hurricane, Patricia, the strongest hurricane uh, on record. And yeah, you know, I just look for opportunities to keep in the in the sort of narrative tales that I want to tell, I'm looking for opportunities to um, educate myself and educate readers on on the changing world and what it means, so the challenges it, we face. When does the book come out? It's not a book; it's a magazine article in GQ. Oh, okay, um, yeah. and it's scheduled. Right, I mean, you know, they keep pushing back the date, but it was scheduled for it's scheduled for November, I believe now. Well, maybe I, I can get you back on again, and we can talk about the the article itself, and maybe put okay. it into the context. I mean, you know, I know you got to do your. It's not a book, but do your press tour. And you know, one Sorry, of the yeah. comments I had on here was, "You must be thinking about writing a book." A lot of journalists do, and so do you feel like there's a book in all this that you've done, especially with the Florida climate change issue? Well. So the short answer is on the Florida climate change stories, I did not see a story, a book length story there. I, I actually have an agent in New York. We talked about it and I could be wrong. I just felt like it was sort of done, you know, and it would be, I, I would be looking back too much. The, the hurricane thing, I indeed might be a book. I'm going to try and write a proposal on it. Um, I've got, you know, I just, for my own sanity, I have to remain forward thinking. <laughs> well, here's my suggestion. If you are with the con, this being part of that, you know, to me, the book idea for Florida is just like, what does the future hold? And, you know, you look at some of these communities that are, are trying to adapt. And I think there's a lot of interesting stories. And if you're yeah. threading this sort of political vein, like what poor decision 
making was occurring that, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's almost a book kind of like in hindsight, what went went wrong? Because Florida is just going to be like the state of entropy going forward, you know, they're literally going to have to abandon the coast. And so there's got to be some great story in there somewhere, but I I get, you know, you have to find that kernel of like what really ties it all together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe You've, you've reopened my eyes to it. Well, think of yeah. that book, The Swamp. It's it's a history book. And to me, you could write sort of like a future swamp, you know? Yeah. What is Florida's future? And, you know, that, that there was that great Rolling Stone article on Miami. I mean, there was – Yeah. I don't know what you thought of it, but I loved it. It was just like – because I, I love the tone. I thought it was an appropriate tone. It's like, holy shit, you know? <laughs> it's so I'm like, yeah, this guy gets it. And so uh, I really liked it. And I think there's a great book. And who knows? You know, they're fiction books – to come out on this topic. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you guys all feel like there's still interest in this. Um, uh, so I spent the last year writing about, uh, writing about Florida and it's, uh, backward ways. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I wasn't sure anybody else was paying attention, was, was interested in it. No. Well, I obviously, I'm very biased in my interest in this subject, but I think, you know, I even blog a little bit about uh, all sorts of climate change issues. And like when I blog about anything related to Florida, there was something about some sea level rise thing and it had some political angle. And overwhelmingly, it would get shared the most or get the most love on, you know, likes and stuff. I mean, people look at Florida and they know it's crazy, but and I think sea level rise is probably the most charismatic climate change impact. You know, you can get your mm-hmm. head around drought doesn't excite people. But, right. um, yeah, so you're, you're lucky to be working where you are. So, yeah. And, you know, the, there's other stuff, too, that's going on that we're going to that Florida is going to be on the front lines of as well. And that is, you know, a newly warmed climate is going to be more hospitable to a lot of the, the disease vectors that, mm-hmm. that we're going to face. And, you know, I. You don't want to be like look at everything and say, ah, oh, climate change. There was a rainstorm. I was driving. I was. I took a two-day trip from New England and got caught in these horrible rainstorms, like, like little microbursts. And my mind is thinking, well, I wonder if that's a you know result of a destabilized climate. But and the Zika thing, you know, that's clearly that's a virus in in the insect. But is it spreading because we now have longer seasons for the insects to mate? You know, who knows? Uh, but those are issues uh, we're all going to be facing now. Yeah, well, you know, the python issue in Florida, I don't know if it sort of died down, but when, when I was there, it was just – it grabbed the public's attention in ways that was just ridiculous, and people think that they're going to get rid of it. But it's related to climate change, we had – there were some maps like what is future python habitat in it, like stretched all the way to North Carolina. and. Yeah. It, the obsession with pythons in Florida is, you know, one aspect of what a warming climate could mean. Um, <laughs> invasive yeah. species. No, absolutely. Inva- absolutely invasive species. We have invasive species and, and tropical diseases. <laughs> All that stuff. My poor Florida. It's just, yeah, yeah it's going to get slammed. Um, I'll be there in, in December visiting family, but uh, I always like to get out and get my gator. In Sarasota? Sarasota and then Fort Myers. That's Fort Myers. Family. If you ever make it down to Miami, let me know. Well, are you going to be around? <laughs> Maybe I, I could. My wife likes to make trips over to Miami. We go salsa dancing. Maybe I could just multitask. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a heads up. Maybe you'll be around. I'll be here. I'll be yeah. here. Well, Tristan, uh, I think that this has been beyond my wildest dreams of a, an interview with a reporter. I hope my questions weren't too stupid or anything like no, that. No, no, no. I enjoyed it. No. You're not. You're you're the expert. I'm the, I'm a reporter. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I have to get the yeah, – so I'm my own reporter now trying to get the right information out of you. So that, I think we got it there. Um, but uh, any, any final words before we sign off? No, I'm, I'm, I'm honored that you wanted to talk this long with me. I hope, yeah, people want to see the, the, the stuff I'm doing in the future, the, um, the hurricane story in GQ magazine scheduled for November. It may be they, – they liked it a lot and they're, they were talking about saving it for the end of the year issue, which, which I'm against. <laughs> <laughs> but it, so it might be that then too. It, it's, you know, those, those dates are not set in stone. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm gonna keep trying to educate myself and readers about what we all are facing and and doing about this. Well, I hope we can stay in touch. And if you have any questions on climate change or need experts in certain areas, I could put you in touch. Think of me that way too. So fantastic. But and so I'm gonna have show notes for this on my website and any information you want to to share, I can put on on, on my website. So I'll, I'll allude to some of these things. But. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Thanks again. I I appreciate your time. And for everybody out there listening, this is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to America Adapts, the climate change podcast. I'm Doug Parsons. You are now in the Adaptation and Wine Power Hour. And after a brief break, another vacation, darn it, um, I've got Tim Watkins back. Hey, Tim, how are you? (laughs) Pretty good, Doug. How are you? Oh, I'm doing just dandy. I hope you don't resent me my vacations and certainly don't make it sound like I go on a lot of them. <laughs> it doesn't feel that way. No, I got a whole podcast plan on just, you know, the federal agencies and all the vacations they take. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to get creative in how I, I loop it into adaptation, but there's going to be a, a, a hook there somehow. All right. Okay, you know, before we get started on any of the content here, we, you know, I just had this amazing podcast with Kristen Corton um, out of Florida. Great podcast, and you're going to be part of that one. But I need to know what wine are you drinking today? Oh, uh, excellent question. Um, I'm drinking Goat du Rome, which is uh, a label out of South Africa, and it's a play on words because it comes from Cote du Rhone in, in France. And apparently there was a lawsuit there, but they continue to produce under this label. And it's a blend of three white varietals, and um, just finished the bottle, so it's pretty well, good. Could, could you could you say the um, that the the name again? Goats do roam, as in goats wander around; they roam on their own, kind of thing. You have a beautiful French accent. Oh, it's just it's it's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Goat de Rome. Um, run. Right. Okay, so. I'm drinking a, a cupcake vineyard. It's actually not as cheesy as it sounds, and it's a Sauvignon Blanc, and it's 2015, and it's not bad. And it's actually cooled down today here in D.C., but I still feel like it's it's an appropriate kind of drink to have today. So here we are, guys. We're, we're, we're drinking some solid wine, and I think if anything, people are learning about wine, if not adaptation. If anything, I think people are um, learning that we have – our, our taste in wine is pretty cheap. <laughs> <laughs> I will get two buck Chuck onto the show. I will. <laughs> I just buy whatever's on sale. Well, listen, you know what? I'm stupid here. Listen, all you wine producers out there, if you want an easy plug for your product, just send me some cases of wine and I would be happy to plug your wine on America Daps, you know? Our, what, so our very first conversation or second or something like that, we, we talked about, or I mentioned a wine that's produced in South Florida made out of avocados. And I never did contact them. Oh, man, yeah. We need to look them up. We'll do it. Okay, we will. All right, first off, I got a couple things I want to cover here with you, Tim. The This is the, the first that we're doing this because, you know, we're a new podcast, but I've been hearing 
from listeners. And I just want to thank all my great listeners out there, but I've had a few comments and I want to read them. And the first one is, and this is from the podcast with Beth, Beth Gibbons, the uh, American Society of Adaptation Professionals. And I got a comment from Suzanne Purdue, and she's from the Ontario Center for Adaptation Resources. And this is what she said. And she's a climate uh, researcher there. On the adaptation versus resilience debate, I don't pers personally view them as this or that. I see resilience as a necessary component and even a result of adaptation. Resilience doesn't imply doing more of the same, but instead being able to recover or bounce back. Adapting to climate change should increase resilience. If it does the opposite, then it's maladaptation. So we've had a lot of discussion about adaptation and resilience. What do you think of her thoughts? Wow, that's a really great observation. Um, I actually tend to agree. I guess, uh, you know, in the vernacular, people talk about resilience versus adaptation, where resilience is trying to keep your systems sort of whole and functioning as they always have been, uh, despite what changes and forces act on them from the outside, whereas adaptation is to acknowledge that systems may very well change uh, and you can't really stop them from changing, but if you can kind of manage the direction and pace in which they change, then you're better off. I like her observation that, you know, resilience could be the result of adaptation. That's a that that raises some interesting possibilities. And and yeah, I think if you're if you're managing adaptively, you know, your economy, your social systems, your transportation systems, agriculture, your natural resources, whatever the case may be, if you're doing that adaptively and in a smart way, I think you probably end up with systems that can continue to function as they have been for the most part. So yeah, I can see how resilience would be the result of, of good adaptive management. But um, I do think that with adaptation, you have to acknowledge that there may be situations where change really precludes any possibility that the system will look and work the way that it always have. And you have to be prepared for, uh, you know, having a system that's quite different in the future. I agree, and I, I just want to make a correction here. I, I mentioned where she's from. She's from the Ontario Center for Climate Impacts and Adaptation Resources. And so, uh, again, Suzanne, thanks for, for writing in. She's a climate change researcher. We have an international audience for the show, Tim, so that's most, very exciting. Most excellent, and, and Canada is one of my favorite countries. So. <laughs> Mine too. Um, okay, second comment comes from a T. Goodwell. All right. This is kind of an interesting comment. First time listener, um, with respect to resilience versus adaptation, resilience is a state of mind. Adaptation is what you do as a result of a resilient mindset. You build a seawall. The terms are entirely compatible, and I think I'm going to name a future podcast that resilience is a state of mind. But uh, any thoughts on that? <laughs> That's good. Yeah, state of mind. I, I'm certainly in a resilient state of mind, so uh, I guess I'm being adaptive. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's it's yeah. sort of a life philosophy kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, actually, I see um, both of those comments as kind of related, right? Which is that uh, if you're doing adaptation the right way, you end up with a system that in many ways can be considered resilient. That is, it still functions and, and perhaps looks the way it always has. But, but again, I, I just think you have to be prepared for things looking and working in a very different way in the future. Okay. Well, again, thanks to uh, our listeners and other listeners out there. Please do send in your comments. You have questions or observations about a podcast. I want to hear from you. So we will read which, what you have to say generally on the air unless we just get overwhelmed with them. Or That's right. Yeah. Once you monetize this show, maybe we should send out bottles of wine to people who write in. <laughs> we could go into a dark direction with this podcast. <laughs> 
Um, and I think we chatted at one point that there's this issue that the Adaptation Wine um, Adaptation Wine Power Hour actually isn't an hour long. And so maybe one of the episodes we actually take an hour for this and we go over viewer com- uh, listener comments or something. Oh, that would be good fun. Okay. Uh, there would that you know that would be a lot of wine, but <laughs> <laughs> not sure not sure how lucid our conversation would be at the end of that. Well, I would structure them that all the really negative ones would be toward the end, and so maybe we would be at better, you know, more liberty to kind of say what's on our mind. So, <laughs> okay, Doug, this is on the internet, so you know there won't be any negative comments. Right, not at all. No, no trolling. Um, okay, so the second issue I want to talk with you, Tim, during our power hour is this really cool article I read that was based on a, a study that these folks did in the journal PLOS One, and the name of the article, if you're interested, I want to track down, and I'm going to have this uh, the journal article on the website, but it's How Climate Change Beliefs Among U.S. Teachers Do and Do Not Translate to Students, and this was published September 7th, 2016 in PLOS One. And so in a nutshell, what this um, study was looking at is they looked at 370 middle school students in coastal North Carolina, and they were trying to get a sense of how they were absorbing climate change information. And so I was very encouraged by this this study because so a teacher believed climate change was caused by humans and that was shared with their students. The students would typically pick up on that same position. You know, that's the science. But if the students are exposed to climate change, but a teacher tends to be a skeptic and that's shared with students, then the students aren't necessarily going to pick up on that skepticism from the teacher. And uh, it looks like the students are actually thinking on their own on this issue. I was very encouraged by the study, very small study, but it's encouraging news. Thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. And first of all, we, we should say who the authors are, I think. That's Catherine Stevenson, Niels Peterson, and Amy Bradshaw from NC State. Yeah, I'm encouraged as well. And to the extent that adaptation really is about, you know, thinking in a hopeful way about the future and how we can respond to climate change. Uh, you know, this is a study that gives me a lot of hope because it indicates that young kids, and these are middle schoolers, you know, are not only capable, but um, perhaps prefer and are in the habit of questioning and looking at lines of evidence in order to draw conclusions, regardless of what the authority figure in their lives um, has to say about it. And in this case, you know, the authority figure obviously being their science teacher. And so despite, you know, having a teacher who may not attribute climate change to human economic activity, CO2 production and all the rest, uh, the students look at the evidence and they draw that conclusion. And I I just find that really encouraging that that they're doing that. And, you know, in a lot of conversations around climate change um, communication and why people believe what they believe and what sort of messaging you need to do in order to get them to change their views or change their behavior and so on, uh, the, the common wisdom now that's really getting ingrained is that, you know, don't appeal to science, right? Talking about the evidence doesn't work. Presenting facts doesn't work. But what I'm seeing here is at this age range, perhaps under this setting, you know, science and how it's done and, you know, how different lines of evidence can get weighed uh, really is important. And that's um, that's encouraging. That's that's a good uh, a good promotion and a good uh, good value in science and scientific thinking. Well, it, it also the issue of climate change. You know, I I'm sure other people are studying these things, but it, it it's a generational issue, and people 
aren't necessarily encountering climate change impacts today, although we, they, they are out there. But it's the younger you get, maybe, you know, subconsciously, the idea of like these future scenarios, these future things that are going to happen, that means more to you than someone who might be 50 or 70. And uh, who knows how these things are kind of playing out, how people approach these issues. Yeah. And then, of course, in the political sphere, that sort of thinking has considerable impact on who you might vote for. Well, this study was one tiny little study, but I encourage any scientists out there, social scientists that are, are looking at climate change, that we, we need more of this. We need to, to demonstrate that uh, demographics out there are, are taking this issue seriously. So uh, very good, very encouraging. And I will also say one of the things that um, surprised me a little bit is, and, and this was uh, the coastal plain and Piedmont of North Carolina, uh, they found that almost all of the students, so 92% of the students, had teachers who believe and accept that global warming is happening. So that's pretty impressive. That's That was a much higher figure than I, I guess I would have imagined. So for the most part, these students are being taught by teachers who think that global warming is real. Uh, a lot of those teachers don't attribute it to human activity. They attribute it to natural causes. But um, but nevertheless, the vast majority of students have teachers who think that climate change is real. So um, I guess that gives me a little bit of hope as well. So most of this information we're getting is actually coming out of an article that talked about the journal article. And so this article actually ended it a little bit on a pessimistic note. They, they talked about this, but then the last line is most middle school science teachers reported spending a short time focusing on climate change one to two hours on average. And I'm assuming that's like a semester, you know, that they, they do these things. I've heard these numbers before. So not a lot of exposure. Yep. Yep. Although, so I, my background is in ecology and evolutionary biology. And certainly at the middle school and even the high school level, you know, very little is spent on evolution and ecology, right? Ecology is the unit that's done at the end of the school year, which of course means that with teaching and you know, all the other time constraints that build up over the school year, um, those two really important central branches of the biological sciences tend to get uh, short shrift. That's a that's a, uh, a limitation that I'm pretty familiar with, but it's nice to see that they're spending at least some time talking about climate change. Yeah, the old saying, you can't spell elective without ecology. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Took you a second to get that one. I, I, I don't know if it was going to work. Okay, well, again, that good article, and I, I hope to see more of it. But any parting thoughts for our listeners, Tim? Parting thoughts? Wow, not a whole lot. Just keep uh, <laughs> keeping an eye out on adaptation, and we'll talk to you next week, Doug. But we need to, uh, we do need to check out the avocado wine, and maybe our listeners know about it, so they can uh, make some suggestions, perhaps, for wines that we might look at that have to do with climate change and adaptation. Well, I was thinking about creating a page on my website where people can send in photos of themselves drinking their favorite wine and then giving me some sort of climate change quote. Um, and so that would be a little weird, but hey, I'm willing to do it. So send them in. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. All right, Tim. Thanks a lot. Yep. Thanks, Doug. Talk to you next time. All right. Thanks, everyone. This is uh, America Daps, the climate change podcast. Hey, thanks, everyone, for joining us today. I absolutely love that episode. Thanks again to Tristan Corton and Tim Watkins. Now, if you want to get hold of Tristan Corton, just contact me and I'll let him know that you're looking for him. And to see all the links and the material that were mentioned in the podcast, go to my website, americaadapts.org. There's a ton of great stuff in there. Keep in mind, related to this 
story. You know, every possible news outlet was covering it, and I have links to a lot of those, and there's YouTube videos, there's links to The Daily Show. Um, someone even made a music video for this, and I'll, I'll have that on the show notes for it, so americadaps.org. Also, would you please consider subscribing to the show on iTunes? Just go to iTunes on your app and your phone and uh, look up America Daps. And for those of you who have Androids, if you go to the website, I actually have a section on what is a podcast, and it sort of walks you through the different options you might have to find the podcast. Now, listen, if you have comments or if you have questions about the podcast, I'm at americaadapts at gmail.com. I want to hear from you. If you have adaptation stories, let me know. I'm going to probably create a site where I'm just going to post all this sort of information on the website so people can learn what other folks are doing all across the country. Keep in mind, America Adapts is your platform, too, to talk about adaptation. And on the website, americadapts.org, if you're looking for information about me, I do public speaking. Just let me know. Contact me. Uh, You just email me. That's the best way to get a hold of me. And anything else that you have, any questions, just let me know. But once again, tune in next week on America Adapts, a climate change podcast. And thank you so much for listening. Remember, you adapt, we adapt, America adapts.